0: Today's reading is from the book of Job, chapter 1, 1 through 5. There was a man in the country of Uz named Job. He was a man of complete integrity who feared God and turned away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. His estate included 7,000 sheep and goats, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large number of servants. Job was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to take turns having banquets at their homes. They would send an invitation to their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Whenever a round of banqueting was over, Job would send for his children and purify them, rising early in the morning to offer burnt offerings for all of them. For Job thought, perhaps my children have sinned, having cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular practice. The word of the Lord. God. The kids are invited to kids. You may be seated. The kids are invited to kids' church with Emily, I think. You're always good if you just guess one of the Emilys. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's a theme that rings out through us through these wisdom literature books that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, last two summers ago, um, we walked, or journeyed through the book of Proverbs, which has this, actually opens with these lines that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and it occurs a couple of times in that. The second, last summer we walked through the book of Ecclesiastes, which is the second wisdom literature book as we're going through them, um, and it too talks about the fear of God. The end of Ryan's reading, which sounded happy, ended with this notion of, um, all these things are beautiful, but God does it so that we might fear Him. That there's this awe and reverence within that book, this fear of God. And then the book of Job that we're going to begin today has this own way of thinking what does the fear of the Lord make the beginning of wisdom? How does that happen? Uh, Chris made this banner for us when we started Proverbs. Um, about the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and how we live into this. Now, um, there are four wisdom books, or there's three traditional wisdom books, um, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. Um, Most people slot the Song of Solomon, which we'll do next summer, into sort of a wisdom book, um, largely because if you don't put it there, it's very awkward. Um, because then you have to come up with some other reason for uh, ancient Near Eastern uh, erotic poetry in the Bible. Um, So everybody's looking forward to next summer. Um, That'll be plenty of fun. Um, Depending, you know, you would think with culture that would be very popular, but but coming to church to hear about that, not, not so much. Um, but that's next summer, Um, so this summer, and one of the ways I used to talk about this when we started is is Proverbs has this way in which, like, when you get your bachelor's degree if you went to college or if you've met anybody who's finished their bachelor's degree, where they sort of finish with this idea of, look, I know everything. I know so much. I have studied so well, Um, and then Ecclesiastes has this way of sort of of bringing about this jadedness of of this sort of way in which you get your master's degree and you finish and you're like, "Um, I know a lot about one thing. There's so much more out there, but like I've really gone deep into one thing and I have the critical insight to help people in the world. I've gained some hard-won knowledge and wisdom here. Um, Normally at that point, it's really important that you get a job, but some people um, go, If you've had kids in college now, it's important to laugh at that one. Um, Too close to home for some. Uh, But then the next thing is if you decide to go and get a Ph.D., that brings us to the book of Job. And often people, if you've met people who used to get Ph.D.s, I think it's changed, um, but it used to end with this, I know nothing. Um, And I think the wisdom literature works in that sort of way of sort of this confident assertion of knowing much that comes from the book of Proverbs. This different confident assertion in the book of Ecclesiastes of knowing much, but with the jadedness, um, with an edge to it. And then finally, this, this last notion of knowing much, which is, I know nothing. And that, I think, is what the spoiler alert will get us to at the book, end of the book of Job, is this way in which I have spoken once, I have spoken twice, I shall speak no more, is what Job says at the end. And so that is a bit of the journey that we'll be on this summer um, as we go through that book. Now, it's, it's structured in a certain way. We're only going to talk about the first five verses today. But what I wanted to talk about briefly was, um, or maybe for a little bit longer than briefly, is both the last two books and wisdom literature in a different way. The first is wisdom literature, all these wisdom books, including um, the Song of Songs, don't really have covenantal or redemption history within it. So if you're familiar with the Bible, the the people of Israel are rescued out of slavery and brought into new life, that they have this time in the land in which they're working out their relationship very actively with God, often failing as the church does as well. And there's sort of this play within it. The wisdom literature really doesn't tell us anything about the saving acts of God. It takes place more in a created realm of the universe in which we're supposed to flourish within our proximate context as creatures of God. The Hebrew term wisdom, um, I meant to look it up, uh, chokmah, uh, I believe. Carla, is that right? Hokma. I never get the C-H anyway, so I was right in my, in my universe. Uh, if you want the C-H, ask Carla afterwards. Um, has this notion of sort of artfully living within creation. And one of the reasons why I think the wisdom literature is often neglected by the church is because it doesn't have this redemptive arc within it. That's the story we've majored in in sort of late Protestantism, is very much telling the story of God saving acts. Wisdom literature, while it believes in a God of saving acts, has a different way of seeing our lives lived in this creation and relationship between people and things and God in a way that's meant for our flourishing and our goodness. And so as we've walked through this wisdom literature, they have different lenses on it. Now, this is one of the parts, um, I was just talking to Kelly's mom about this this past week, but that scripture, um, if you come from a certain tradition, the idea that scripture has tension within it is not received kindly. But particularly if you look at wisdom literature, there's very big tension between what does flourishing look like in the book of Proverbs? How is the universe ordered in the book of Proverbs? What does flourishing, what does the universe look like in the book of Ecclesiastes? The Job blows that all up, is what does it look like in the face of suffering? And not only that, in the face of righteous suffering. Um, so wisdom literature has this way of sort of spinning these things out for us in different ways. Um, and it has a lot to do with living within creation as creatures of God. Um, Krista, Krista Tippett, is she the one who does the On Being podcast? Yes, Emily knows. NPR listener in the back. Um, uh, uh, she, in her book on wisdom, she interviews, uh, I believe it's Rowan Williams who says, wisdom is reclaiming the lost art of being a creature. Wisdom literature, because it doesn't deal with those grand redemptive arcs, which when you think about the history of Israel or when you think about the history of, of the church, It's most of us who live these small, quiet lives in proximate contexts, trying to work out our own faith and flourishing, and wisdom literature is good for that. We know the mighty saving acts of God. We know how God has redeemed us and is bringing us to our consummation in the language of the last sermon series, that God is going to do that. But in the meantime, we live within these contexts trying to faithfully, um, in the words of the New Testament, work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Wisdom literature is good for that. The last thing I wanted to share, oh, this is, uh, I just, I share this every year. It's so small, Um Uh, this file file the differences data is just all these points information you sort of gather more about the points knowledge you loop together points insight you go from one point to another point wisdom is the track in which you do that and my favorite conspiracy theory Um, uh, that that wisdom is sort of this movement from it's not just data about the world or information, or even insight, but it's this way of sort of tracing through creation that hopefully keeps us from conspiracy theory. Um, uh, But that uh, is neither here nor there. Now, one of the things, also so small, I should really look at these before. I don't have my glasses on, and I will tell you why in just a second. Um, But this is on the fear of the Lord, and healthy and unhealthy fear. This comes from John Tyson, that healthy fear, unhealthy fear, has the sense of abandonment. Healthy fear has this notion of acceptance. Unhealthy fear, condemnation. Healthy fear, forgiveness. Um, striving versus resting. Orphan child versus child. Slavery versus freedom. Forced labor versus joyful service demoralization versus the restoration of dignity, increasing guilt and shame and unhealthy fear, and healthy fear, the removal of guilt and shame, deceit, hypocrisy, hiding from God, and healthy fear, transparency and integrity and pursuing God. In unhealthy fear, we're often running from God. In healthy fear, we are running toward God. Um, From the book of Genesis, unhealthy fear leads us to close ourselves in fig leaves, um, healthy fear would bring us back to that place of nakedness without shame. Um, unhealthy fear, fearing his rejection. Healthy fear, anticipation of his pleasure. Um, unhealthy fear leads to despising the fear of God in the end, and healthy fear leads towards delighting in the fear of God. Um, some of those you could, you could quibble with in there, but I think there's this notion in which we always want to shift this fear to reverence or to not fear at all. Um, but I think that this names some of that displacement of the self that has to be happen for us to gain wisdom. Is If this is about creation, about living in our created lives, one of the things that fear has the capability of is decentering ourselves as the center of creation. We are not the center of all that is. And then to have fear of something else makes that thing the ultimate. So if your unhealthy fear, if your fear is of um, uh, your boss, your partner, uh, your country, friend, an upcoming meeting, all of your life begins to revolve around that. And so being invited into having our fear directed to the Lord so that we can gain wisdom is to also place it outside of the nature of other things within our context that can sort of determine us. It invites us to find freedom in a different way. You know, if you have healthy fear of somebody who's near you, there's no freedom to be found there. But having fear of of the one who rightfully knows us more than we know ourselves and is near to us in ways in which we aren't near to ourselves, is aware of us in each way, I think helps us begin to live into this artfully way of being in creation as a creature of that God. And that's one of the ways in which we can adapt into this passage. Now, the reason I have my glasses off, this is about as creative as I get in a sermon. Um, And if you never want me to do it again, tell me you like it. Because normally that's my impetus um, to stop is I want to present the argument about wisdom in the book of Proverbs. I have costume changes, white glasses for the book of Proverbs. The change is to the dark glasses for the book of Ecclesiastes. These, these are big costume changes for me. This is about as creative as I get. Um, so that's where we are today. Um, so I want to present first the argument of the book of Proverbs about wisdom. I want to present next the argument with, from the book of Ecclesiastes in dialogue with each other about wisdom. And then I'll give a quick overview to the start of the book of Job from the five uh, verses that Jamie read. Let us start. As the inheritor of Solomonic Wisdom, Solomon's Wisdom, the book of Proverbs, um, what I've argued and what Jonathan read for us today, thank you Jonathan, is that creation is interwoven with meaning. My book contains these great insights in which we gain from what is received to us. As the book of Proverbs, as I explained it, has this way of sort of saying, it, wisdom comes to us in the way that a father passes knowledge on to a son. We receive this thing. And what we receive is the proper way of aligning our affections and desires and ordering our world so that we may flourish. And what happens in chapter 8, what I argued in chapter 8, was not just that this is just like the way in which we can find ways to, um, uh, what's the book, um, win friends and be successful and and this, that, and the other, but is actually woven into the art of creation. That Lady Wisdom was there at the beginning and that she was woven into the world in such a way that the order, the way in which we flourish, is there in its bedrock. The truths in which I explain from chapters 1 through 9 in these lectures talk to us about the ways in which we can aim correctly so that we always and capably flourish inside the world. What I did in those other chapters was give us short sayings to help us govern our relations. They need to be applied correctly. Applied incorrectly, they are no longer wise. Um, But applied correctly, they point us to a way in which we can flourish in these ways. At the end, there's some collected sayings also oriented in that way. And finally, there's the story of the Proverbs 31 woman, which speaks to us of the incarnate nature of wisdom, that wisdom can become flourishing in the world. Tell the story of a concrete person, a woman we could all imagine in the Proverbs 31 woman, who's able to order her life and family and structure in a way that she is the example of flourishing. So we aim correctly. In contrast to Lady Wisdom, I talk about Lady Folly. At one point, Lady Folly uh, has a bed she entices us to, who uh, the bottom of it stretches all the way to hell that we in life have choices, choices that can order us towards our flourishing, that are anchored in deep wisdom and tradition, and the knowledge that we gain, and we also have choices that can drag us down. I portray these in the characters of friends who take you into stealing and then consume you afterwards. I portray these in Lady Folly who drags us to the pits of hell, and in these places there is death and destruction. Um, for the New Testament, um, I have one passage in particular. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was with God in the beginning. Word logos can mean wisdom. The one I personify as Lady Wisdom is actually the one who becomes incarnate to us, who orders creation in this way and brings about life and its flourishing Or to say even more so, um, for the pagans run after these things, uh, your heavenly Father knows that you need them, but seek first is my argument. Seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. My argument for the book of Proverbs is that you should seek first proper things, and it will lead towards your flourishing in creation. the closing of that argument, introducing the author of Ecclesiastes. I Kohelet, (laughs) the writer of Ecclesiastes, the teacher, hear what my brother who wrote the book of Proverbs is arguing for us as wisdom. What I want to say is that that might work out 90% of the time, 95% of the time, 97% of the time. But there is no guarantee, if you follow his advice, that creation will run its course properly for you. We all know people who set their sights properly, who get sick, who suffer in life. We all know people who have attempted to live correctly and walk in that path, living according to wisdom, and yet somehow the script has failed them and they find themselves in despondency and despair. I argue in my book that while there is some meaning out there, while there is something good, while there is something that we are always sort of longing for, trying to grab it is like trying to chase the wind. God is always keeping it before us, It's always somewhat within our grasp, and yet, like smoke, that word I use, vapor, meaningless, meaningless, vapor, hevel, all these things, when we come towards them, we reach out to grab them, and they disappear. The permanence that we long for, that he's promising us, the author of the book of Proverbs, is often beyond our grasp. So it may work out for you, but oftentimes it does not. And he, in his book, has very little room for those exceptions. I'm here to remind you that life has its own fraught difficulty. As Ryan read for us today, there's a time for all these things. And while sometimes we hear that passage as good news, there's a time for war, there's a time for peace, there's a time for gathering this, that, and the other. It's just to say there's a time for all these things. And while they all might appear beautiful to God in God's time, God has set eternity in our hearts, and we cannot figure it out. The author of the book of Proverbs began his argument that we should fear God because that displaces us to gain wisdom. I argue that we should fear God because what else do we have to do with this one who continually sets out meaning before us? We are unable to grasp it. Now, hear me on this God is surely there. God is surely making something of creation, but it is so hard for us to figure it out. So what do we have to do? We have to work and enjoy the labor of our hands, not for profit, but to enjoy the good days of labor and work, then to gather with our families, to eat a good meal, to seize the day in some sense, and go to sleep resting and hoping and at least having some aspect for tomorrow. My argumenter, he went to the Sermon on the Mount, yet he conveniently leaves out a different passage in the Sermon on the Mount. But I tell you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That, your children may be chil- that you may be children of your own Father in heaven. Yet... He causes his son to rise on the righteous and the evil. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and saints rain on the righteousness and the unrighteous. Creation is not ordered as the way the book of Proverbs made it out to be that if you just aim correctly, rain will come for you. God sends rain on those who are ordered correctly and those who are disordered. God sends the sun on those who are ordered correctly and those who are disordered. So what for us is not to try and preserve this perfect way, but to accept our limits, to live with wisdom within the limits of creation, but with acceptance that we don't see or know at all. It's like trying to grasp smoke and there's great difficulty. Wisdom is accepting our limits. Now before I let you go, I'm the guy who put together the book of Ecclesiastes, and I have my final words, this is true, (laughs) that the final words of the book of Ecclesiastes come not from Kohelet, who has his time, and come not from the writer of the book of Proverbs, But someone, as I am giving advice to my son, and here's what I say to him. Not only was Kohelet wise, congratulations, Kohelet, but it also imparted knowledge to the people and pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote wrote was upright and true. Congratulations. The words of the wise, though, like this, are like goads. They're like collected sayings, like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. This is just our prodding that he's offered to us. Be warned, my people, my son, of anything in addition to them, of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Are you not exhausted by Kohelet? Um, Does anybody know a Kohelet? Um, Sure, your day was nice, but remember, you'll die. It's no fun to be around. And so my final words, now all has been heard, here's the conclusion of the matter. We should fear God and keep his commandments, for this is our duty. Even though we are limited, even though he is right that it doesn't always work out, it is right for us to still strive for that order and that creation and to fear God and to keep his commandments, for that is what we're called to do, because for in the end, even though it's hard for us to work out, that skepticism shouldn't deny the fact that God will bring every deed into judgment. Sure, we're limited. Sure, it can often feel like chasing the wind. Sure, sure, it feels like grasping for vapor. But what I want to tell you is that all of it will be revealed in time. Kohelet, the author of Ecclesiastes, saw correctly only considering things under the sun. But God will bring all these things for tuition. So my brother in the book of Proverbs has correctly seen that there is an order, that there is wisdom entwined with all things, and that we are to live into that for our flourishing. Hear the words of Kohelet. But they're not the words that you can base your life off of. Thus concluding the argument. Okay, so we have wisdom in the book of Proverbs. I don't think I need to recap. I think I did a good impersonation of those authors. I could have been snobbier. Again, I'm limited. My costume change was eyeglasses. I'm not going to get too far into this. Um, We have different ways of looking at wisdom, and these wisdom ways exist in tension with one another. You can see it in the ways in which they present their argument. Proverbs firmly sees that this creation is ordered and good, and we just have to sort of move into that space, and blessing will follow us. And I think that that is true more often than not. I just came up. With, I came across a phrase um, that today we live under the wonderful tyranny of the exception. Anything you say, if somebody can name one exception for it, for some reason, all of it's out the window. <laughs> um, Cohelet would maybe like that argument to say, yes, let's follow that. Uh, We live under the tyranny of the exception to say that this is how it works towards flourishing and to say one person it didn't work for is not to negate the whole thing. Um, It used to be we said there are exceptions that prove the rule. Um, Now we have exceptions that disprove everything. and It's not a lot of fun, Um, but... Point being is that we, um, I think the book of Proverbs speaks correctly in anticipation of what it would be like to aim and strive in the world and to trust in goodness and things, yet knowing it fails. And the book of Proverbs, read correctly, has space for some of that failing. Ecclesiastes only sees that sort of um, limitedness of who we are, that, that things are good, things are beautiful, but they're just frustrating. Um, it's so hard to order those things but what we have in this third book in the book of job who who sets on to the stage now is this different question it's not quite the same question as the other books the book of job asks this question is what is the point of faith then we'll see it in the scene next week where the accuser the one often translated satan shows up in the heavenly court and he says does job fear god for nothing is he only in it for the goods What is the nature of faith? The other question is, is what is the possibility of suffering? What does it mean to suffer? and What does it mean to suffer righteously? And so what Jamie read for us today is the book begins with, In the land of Uz there lived a man whose name was Job. Now many of the commentators argue that this beginning of the book is like saying, In a galaxy far, far, far away and a long, long time ago. If you're a reader of scripture or books, this type of beginning like this says that this is a, um, all the other instances in the Old Testament, or many of the other instances that begin with this, for instance, Samuel, when he comes to David, and he says, you know, there was a man, uh, are all parables, they're all um, teachings, they're all this. Job might and could be a real person. I have no argument in saying that Job is or is not, but the preservation of the book isn't there for us to just ask if this is a true story, but to ask the questions the book of Job is asking. Um, Now, Jonathan and Emily last week had talked about um, studying with, I believe somebody from Africa, I can't remember which country, who uh, told them as students at Wheaton College that truth can reside in story whether the story happened or not. The truth of what the book of Job is telling us isn't contingent upon there being a literal Job who lived in the land of Uz. It's contingent upon the story playing out the, the knowledge, the wisdom, in a way that is truthfully related to reality as we know it. If it were not related to the ways in which we can also understand the world, it would not be true. It's primarily in the West that truth has this um, does it factually line up sort of way. Um, But that's not the way all cultures perceive of truth, which is to say that the book of Job is truth in a lot of ways. And it's about this man, Job, who lives in the land of Uz. Now, first is that this tends to mean he lives far away from the Israelites. And most people maintain that Job is not an Israelite. Now, one of the things that Zane um, and Rachel have brought us in the the Bema podcast, if you listen to it, I believe it's episode negative one, which is odd for a podcast, but they went back and recorded a zero and then a negative one. Uh, But they talk about how Judaism changed because of Christianity. Um, And so what happens is Job is sort of universally recognized um, in Judaism as a figure who's not a Jew. Christianity comes about and starts to claim Job as this righteous sufferer in the pattern of Jesus Christ. Jewish scholars, as they continue to debate, begin to think maybe Job's an Israelite. They're not quite happy with him being the Gentile who's adopted into the covenant. You could understand that. My only point is, is that uh, we've got this complex sort of mythic character. It's, it's hard to understand who Job is, and I think that's good and important for us. Now, he appears up in the Bible in two other places, I believe. Um, this is from the book of Ezekiel. Son of man, if a country sins against me by being unfaithful, and I stretch out my hand against it to cut off its salute fly and sins fan upon it and kill its people and their animals, even if three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they could not save themselves by their righteousness, declares the sovereign Lord. Noah is not a Jew. He exists before the Abrahamic covenant. Job also then becomes sort of one of these mythic guys too. Daniel um, is weird because most of us would be thinking Daniel, the book of Daniel, but he's concurrent with the book of Ezekiel. He's too close. There is a king in the ancient Near East, Dan-El, who was also considered by the Jews one of those sort of righteous people who feared God not being in the covenant. He too is also an older mythic figure. And so when we read this, if you want to read it, expanded, And there's no, there's no lockdown argument that it's Daniel from the book of the Bible. There's no lockdown argument that it's Dan L., this righteous king. But I think if you want to look at it within its context, jo- Noah, old, not Jewish. Job, in this context, very old, not Jewish. Dan L., This king, who they also view in the same way as Noah and as Job, and not Jewish, fit together as these three people known for their righteousness among the covenant people, who could not stand in their righteousness on this day, Um, and so that is sort of the argument for that appearance. It appears again in the book of James um, in. As you know, we count as blessed those who have preserved. You've heard of Job's perseverance and seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Um, these are the descriptions of the book of Job and the rest of the Bible. This is the description of the book of Job in the book of Job. This man was blameless, upright. He feared God and shunned evil. Job was blameless, upright. He feared God. And shunned evil. Blameless and upright seemed to speak of his integrity or his character and actions with people. He was somebody in his actions with people who was blameless and who appeared to be a man of integrity and upright. Now, these descriptions are used of other characters of the Bible, but not all four. Um, Job is being ramped up in a very important way here. Not only is he blameless, not only is he upright, he fears God. He is one who has this fear of God that places the self as the center of the universe, and he's one who's shunning evil patterns in the world resulting from that fear of God. And there's a symmetry to this. This is the description of his um, family. He had seven sons and three daughters and owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 5,000 yoke of oxen, and 5,000 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. In the ancient Near East, this way of putting together these two things, this is a person who is righteous in so many ways and is blessed in so many ways, is to speak of a relationship between the created order. It's almost like the book of Proverbs. He shunned evil. He feared God. He was upright and blameless. And guess what? Things worked out for him. He was one blessed, by God in that. It speaks of a, of a co-relationship there between God and Job. Um, and we'll pick that up next week. Um, Have you considered my servant Job in the next section of the scripture? But there's this relationship there that in the ancient Near East you would see this is a man who is truly blessed. And so much so his sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays. I think in Jamie's translation it said on, on certain days. It's unclear what they're referring to here. Um, and he would, they would invite their three sisters to drink with them. This is a family, if it's trying to portray Job as sort of in this patriot, uh, patristic period before sort of the full covenant, it's a family that gets along. Now, that may seem like a miracle in the modern world, but if you've read the book of Genesis with that family, it's also a miracle in that world. Um, that this is a family that they say, there's, there's one translation of this um, because it's unclear that says each of the seven boys has a day of the week and they all get to party one day of the week together. Um, that's how this family is ordered in that way is that they like each other so much. They come together and regularly have feasts. They invite their sisters to drink with them. When the period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice as a burnt offering for each of their children, thinking, again, it's ramping up who Job is, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. You know he's a good parent because he says perhaps. Some parents would offer the sacrifice knowing, last night I know my children sinned and cursed God. Uh, Job even accepts his limits in that way. Um, Perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And what's interesting about this um, phrase, curse God in their hearts, is in the Hebrew, and it happens several times throughout the Old Testament, it's bless God in their hearts. Similar when Job's wife shows up later and she says, will you bless God and die? It's this way in the Hebrew language of separating the word curse from the location of being near the word God. And so rabbis and Christians for a long time, forever, have realized that it doesn't mean bless. It means the inverse of bless. It's just protecting the word God by not putting curse next to it. Um, You won't find a translation that translates it blessed. Blessed. Um, because they all know it's just a way of saying cursed without saying cursed. Um, we have bizarre ways of doing that in Christianity where we make up fake words to go along. Anyways, um, this was Job's regular custom, and what it said in the between there was he was the greatest among the people of the East. Job is being ramped up in this certain way. Oh, one last thing. upon Job offers intercession for his children with those burnt offerings at the end of the book, Job is going to have to offer intercession for his friends. So Job is this one who is upright, blameless, fears God, shuns evil. Um, his family seems to be working out for him. He gets up early and he offers sacrifices when it's time. And he um, is the greatest among those in the East. If you've watched movies or read books with a five sentence, inter, or five Verse introduction like this. How many people think things are going to turn out well for Job? He essentially is the character you think is going to leave his office in a white suit on the day in which the deluge comes. He's being set up in this way. I mean, this would be the worst story ever if just more good things happened to Job. We would not have it written in our Bible, we would not remember it. It's setting up that he is related in this way, that he is blessed in such a way that something bad is going to happen to him. Something bad is going to come for him. And I think as much as, um, if we're honest, we might be annoyed knowing somebody like Job. Um, We might be wishing something bad would happen to him. Maybe, I think we're all human in that way. It's like, look, everything works out for this guy. God, can you give him a bum knee? Um, something to disorder his world in some ways. Uh, We're going to get our wish, and we're going to regret it as we go through the book of Job. But what I think it also sets up Job as this perfect one because it creates space for us. If this one, whom we look at and say everything goes their way, is going to suffer the trials that we see next, how much more so will we find ourselves in that conundrum? how much more will we be brought into our own sufferings and our own anguishes and our own pain? If it were like Job was a kind of nice guy, but he had some secret sins he told nobody about, it would also have the downside of us reading the book incorrectly and saying, being like his friends. See, you deserved it. See, you. this is what you reaped. Um, this is what you sowed. This is what you now reap. And what's going to be very, very hard for us, this is the last thing I'll say about the introduction of this book. Well, first off is Job's obviously a connection to Jesus. This is, I hinted at this. But Job is obviously this connection to a righteous sufferer in that way. But the last thing I want to say is, um, he, is uh, we, he is proclaimed innocent in this introduction, and he is proclaimed innocent by God in the end. So much of what we want to say as we go through the book of Job, even as readers who know that's not the right answer, is he certainly did something to deserve it. Or many of us will say, Romans 3.23, for all have shinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's true, but even God admits that he has gone over over the top in the suffering that he inflicted upon Job. Job is not perfect in the ways in which we think of perfection but he is so upright and so blameless that the suffering that happens to him is not one that is deserved and so that sets up the challenge for us as we step into this book it's like many of us when we see suffering when we see pain anguish and this that in the world the number one thing we want to do is trace it to its source they were a smoker partied too hard. It was an accident in college. They weren't hugged enough as a child. Um, Some sort of way to explain the evil that has befallen in the world. And the first thing these five verses wants to do, do for us is to say, stop right there. You're not going to be able to explain this evil away. So too it is for us to hear that message. Job was one whom everything worked out for because he lived in proper relationship to things as the book of Proverbs promised. But he's about to experience a whole lot of Ecclesiastes. Um, And in that, we'll find that the fear of the Lord, as we have said, is the beginning of wisdom. Let us pray. God, you have instructed us in your servant Job One who lived his life in creation and ordered his life in such a way to see flourishing come from your hand. To live in relationship with you. To be guided by you. But what we will find is that Job is struck nonetheless... So too it is with your servant Jesus who comes among us as well, who lives righteously in our place and is strucken as well. He who is crucified and raised from the grave. So may as we begin to walk into this book, we see Job as one who did not deserve what will befall him. And may we be wise in not asserting that we can see other realities that he deserved it so too may we also be drawn into the pattern and worship of your Son, who while not deserving his suffering, freely chose it so that we might be redeemed and reconciled to you. That his righteous suffering restored us to you, as Job's intercession restores his friends at the end of the book as well. So may we sing and praise you as restored ones. We ask this in the name of the Father.